We've been looking at the digital divide all year, and today I want to discuss how today's broadband deployment mirrors the illegal mortgage redlining practices from the past, and why we can see similar devastating consequences down the line. I'm Roger Chang, and this is your Daily Charge. Here to discuss this problem is CNET senior reporter Shara Tipkin. Welcome, Shara. Thanks for having me. So first off for our listeners, what is redlining? It's uh, it's obviously a, a longstanding practice that's been around for a while, but folks may not necessarily know what it is and, and the kind of impact it's had. Redlining is kind of a term that we've heard, but a lot of people don't necessarily really remember or realize what it was. So it was a practice by banks in the 30s, basically, to map neighborhoods in the country and say, this is a good bet for a mortgage loan. This is a bad bet. Um, and it literally redlined areas that had huge communities of black African-Americans. So it was saying that anybody who lives in these areas are a bad bet, um, not worth making a home loan. And so people who lived in those areas couldn't get home loans. They couldn't um, they couldn't buy homes. They couldn't get insurance. Um, they basically were cut out from this really important way to generate wealth and to pass that wealth on to future generations. So, you know, what we've seen is that, um, it, you know, it's really had huge impacts on the black community in the United States. So, um, you know, only about 42 percent of black people own houses versus about 72 percent of white Americans. And um, the median black household only holds about one eighth the wealth of a white household. Um, you know, and then also in these neighborhoods, uh, there's lower life expense expectancy, um, higher rates of chronic diseases, worse impacts from COVID-19. So it's really just something that, you know, it happened in the 30s and the 40s is kind of its heyday, um, but it's still having implications today. Right. And it's not just about mortgages, right? As you sort of said, with the, like life expectancy, things like access to health care, things like essential services like supermarkets, they weren't opening businesses in these communities. And that so it wasn't just about home ownership. It was about the way these communities were kind of starved in terms of opportunities being denied to them, right? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, it kind of started as, as home loans, but that kind of trickled to everything. If uh, people aren't able to buy better homes or to improve their homes or build homes, why would a supermarket want to go into a neighborhood? Um, you know, and, and when this was happening, it was really about race. It was It was a very racist practice. Um, and that, you know, it, it became illegal in the 1960s, but, uh, you know, it persisted for a really significant period of time and really did have all of these implications. Like, you know, even today, Amazon has been accused of um, avoiding certain neighborhoods with its um, prime fast shipping options. So, you know, it's yeah, it's something that happened in the past, but it it still is affecting people today. Yeah, and that's a good segue to the story that you wrote today, looking at this practice of digital redlining. So what what is that? Basically, this is uh, the, the same neighborhoods that were kind of marked in red by banks in the past are the same areas today that don't have fast home internet service. Uh, it isn't because the carriers are racist and are, are saying, oh, we don't want to be in black neighborhoods or Latino neighborhoods. It's because they are looking at their bottom line and they're saying, hey, to put in fiber is going to be a huge investment. Uh, we have to make back our money in like three to five years. And if you're going into a lower income area, you may not make your money back for longer than that. Um, or in some rural areas, 
you know, it could be decades to really make back the investment. So these ISPs are are basing their build out plans based on income. You know, what what neighborhood are they going to be able to make a lot of money from? So they know if they go into a wealthy neighborhood that the people there will be willing to pay for premium plans. So what's happening is, um, you know, one of the big issues is what's happening is it's DSL that that kind of poorer neighborhoods have. And if anybody remembers what DSL is like or has it now, uh, it's it, you might as well not have Internet in a lot of cases. It's 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 often so slow that you really can't do anything with it, but you're still paying what somebody getting fiber is paying. So that's what's really happening now is, um, you know, in, in kind of pockets all across the country, there are just places that are kind of, that just have basically DSL, really, really slow internet. And there's not really plans to bring faster internet to those areas. Right, and we can sort of see the same potential impact, right, where from before, from the 40s, when not having uh, access to mortgages meant not being able to buy homes, there was sort of a ripple effect, as you said. But with the lack of broadband access and speed broadband, especially in sort of, you know, our post or current coronavirus era, like having access to internet is critical to actually being able to kind of move up in this world. Um, And so by not having this access, it's basically the same impact as the redlining practices from a couple decades ago, right? Yeah. So every expert I talked to made it very clear this is not the redlining of the past, but it has the same outcome. And that is people are being left behind. Um, you know, before the pandemic, it was something that maybe wasn't that obvious or was kind of easy to ignore. Um, but during the pandemic, kids were at home. They had to take classes remotely. How do you do that if you don't have an internet connection? Um, you know, one of the main ways that people were using internet during the pandemic was searching and applying for jobs. Uh, try doing that on your phone. You just, you can't fill out a, you know, a job application, you know, write a resume on your smartphone. You really need to have a better device for that. Uh, so, it, it, you know, and then health outcomes, you know, not having doctors in the area or being able to, to, um, to do telehealth, to go to see your doctor digitally. Um, you know, it's just lots of implications kind of in, in every aspect of lives means that there's a huge chunk of the population that was just kind of cut out from being able to benefit from these things. You know, even just like using things like Netflix, like things that like has become such a part of our society and such a part of the of modern life. Um, there's a lot of people who aren't able to access these sort of things because they don't have Internet at home. Right. And, and I know that. You know, you made the point ISPs aren't necessarily, they're not being racist or anything like that. But I think disproportionately, right, the, the folks who are losing out on the ability to get like a fiber connection, they generally are found in like, black and Hispanic communities, right? They're disproportionately affected. Yeah, definitely disproportionately affected. Um, you know, I think there was a study last summer that um, 31% of uh, black and Latino kids respectively uh, lack access to high-speed home internet versus 21% of white families. Um, you know, it, it's higher, 34% for American Indian and Alaska Native families. So there, there is kind of this gap of people in lower-income communities being affected, and typically lower-income communities are often communities of color. So while this is an issue over income, it still is an issue about race because in the United States, income and race are very closely linked. 
What about the potential solutions to this problem? I know you've talked to some folks for your story about what we should be doing. Uh, what? So, I mean, really, what what should we be doing about the the I guess the the overall broadband business and like how it could be tuned to more I guess equitably serve everyone. This is something that has to be very purposeful. Um, if you think about where funding goes, it's based on FCC maps typically that um, consider a census block served if a single home can get service. A lot of times these gaps are in major cities. So yeah, there will be there could be a home that has fast internet, they're considered served, nobody else can get funding to go in there. The current service provider doesn't want to invest to build in like public housing in LA, for instance. But for kind of a competitor, an upstart to go in there, it's extremely expensive. And then what often happens is the service providers then say, oh, hey, 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 we're actually going to build there. Just just kidding. Like, you can't come in here. Um, you know, we saw that happen with Google Fiber and we've seen it happen a lot of other times. So what has to happen is there has to be um, there has to be ways to fund this that identifies that that, that there are these gaps that are happening um, that maybe weren't showing up on old maps. Um, you know, most of the broadband funding for the past four years went to rural areas, which didn't have any connections at all. Um, you know, now for these areas, there has to be kind of a different approach. Um, you know, one thing people have suggested is redefining Internet as a service under uh, Title II of the Communications Act. So this is the same act that brought about net neutrality. And basically what this would do would give the FCC some powers to regulate internet, um, how much we'd have to see, you know, that would be a real battle. But uh, this would let let there be funding for these sort of things and make sure that uh, providers can't avoid certain parts of town or they have to cover areas. Um, and the fact is we have, you know, this $65 billion infrastructure plan for broadband. That's a lot of money. Um, you know, the criticism for a lot of the past funding is it kind of went to providers and just disappeared. Um, there weren't really build outs in areas that really needed it. So there, there kind of needs to be some more oversight to make sure that build outs are really happening where they should be. Um, and, you know, the FCC is part of their new plan. They are going to be taking input from regular citizens to find out, hey, do you have gaps here? Is are things being built here? What is happening? Um, you know, also a big solution that I found is there are tons of nonprofits and kind of low cost service service providers who are going into these areas. So like in a lot of public housing in the United States, Starry is uh, partnering with organizations like Microsoft and, you know, getting funding in other ways. And it's going in and providing these $15 monthly plans for residents. Or, um, you know, in Cleveland, there are a couple nonprofits who have these huge initiatives to connect residents. And, you know, in a lot of cases, it really is efforts by the state or, you know, the federal government or local governments and, you know, nonprofits or, or private companies to really just, um, you know, come up with ways to get people connected as quickly as possible. Right. And I just want to go back to the, the notion of Title II and that... Just for a bit of context, that was the uh, the move that the FCC had put in place back during the Obama presidency. That was under uh, Chairman Tom Wheeler, who put that, they used Title II to basically uh, enforce the net neutrality laws. That those rules were rolled back during the last last administration under Ajit Pai, the previous FCC chairman. Um, so we're kind of in limbo right now, where 
I guess they theoretically could, but I'll even know, even back then, and I, I want to ask you about that, is even back during Wheeler's uh, SEC administration, like when they when they rolled out or then moved to Title II, they did strip out a lot of the provisions that actually would have given the agency some power to regular pricing, right? Because it was really about net neutrality. They didn't, they didn't really necessarily want to address the the digital divide access, but that is an important part. But like politically speaking, like what do you think is the, I guess, the likelihood of something like that happening? Just also given the huge impact or influence that these service providers have on politics in D.C. Yeah, some of the most powerful lobbying, lobbying organizations in the United States are service providers. Um, they, you know, they fought very hard against things like this, uh, you know, saying, like, let the free market do what it will. Um, but what what's kind of been found in some of these issues with like digital redlining is that the free market isn't f- helping these people. It's not addressing these areas. It, you know, these are private companies who have their own, inv- private or public, but you know, they're, they're, they're not government organizations. They have their own priorities for where they're gonna build things. They're not nonprofits. They're in this to make money. Um, you know, that's their business model. That's the way these companies operate, you know, and that that's just the reality. It's, you know, they don't have to be nonprofits. That's not what they are. But there needs to be some way to kind of fill that gap. But the problem with, um, yeah, with Title II, ISPs are going to would fight very strongly against any sort of uh, efforts to regulate this or to have price caps. Um, You know, in New York, they came out with a plan to to provide affordable Internet to everybody in the state. So every service provider was going to be provi- be required to offer a low monthly rate. And that is being fought very fiercely. It was supposed to roll out this month. That hasn't happened because this is something that, um, you know, service providers don't want. They don't want regulation. You know, companies don't want regulation. And uh, so the likelihood of this, we'll have to see. Um, you know, the FCC can do what it wants, but it also has to have ways to enforce it and you know it can't you know it, it has it, it it's going to be a tough battle if it wants to actually regulate these more fiercely absolutely it's it's clearly going to be an uphill battle there's a lot of complications and moving parts to this issue hopefully we'll continue to you know cover the story and, and work on some of the solutions Shar, thank you for your time you can check out our story and our entire digital divide package on cnet.com if you have any questions, hit us up on Twitter at The Daily Charge or sign up for direct text messages from me by heading to cnet.co slash daily charge. If you liked what you heard, please rate and subscribe to the podcast. It really helps us out. For The Daily Charge, I'm Roger Chang. Thanks for listening. <laughs>